It's also a really small book, only two chapters, just a few verses. It's the second shortest Old Testament book after pop quiz. Anybody know the shortest one? Shortest Old Testament book? One chapter? Not Amos? One of those minor prophets? No, the Old Testament. Obadiah. Obadiah. Mm, only one. Poor Obadiah. Only got one chapter. I wonder how he feels about that. We'll have to ask him in the next life. Well, Haggai, he gets two chapters. So lucky him. And we're going to be in that book for uh, my next four sermons spread out over the next few weeks are going to be coming from the book of Haggai. Uh, I taught on this at the conference in Tallinn, and I just love that book. I, I, I've read it many times before, but I haven't read it recently, and I haven't studied it in a very long time. And I was asked to teach on it in Tallinn, and it blessed me so much. I got so much out of it that I'm doing a teaching series for Thames Valley on it. And I thought I'd share some thoughts as well with us here. I think it's an underrated, um, perhaps neglected book among many of the uh, minor prophets that we often don't look at. And so I hope today to bring you some things that you'll find, no matter the fact they were written two and a half thousand years ago, you'll find them to be very, very relevant to your situation in mind today. I believe, I believe we will. So is it Jaden going to come and read for us? Okay, please come up and read. Jaden is going to read chapter one for us. So I'll put that on the screen and let's... Get our hearts and minds into Haggai's world the best we can. Good morning, Charles. Morning. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through. The prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in, the, in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have you, your fill. You put on clothes but, you, but are never warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of, the, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth is cross. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain the new wine, the olive oil, and every, everything else that the ground produces on people and livestock on, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the, of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And, then, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the, this people of the Lord to the people. This message gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. 
they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Thank you. Fantastic. I think you deserve extra rations for, over lunch uh, for uh, a long reading and words like Zerubbabel. <laughs> How about that? Excellent. Some context and background to when this book was written and what was going on a couple of two and a half uh, thousand years ago. There was a gap in God's people and God's dream for God's people between the plan and the reality. So what's happened a little earlier than this is God's people have been taken into exile. Uh, Babylonians and all the various peoples had taken them or parts of the people of Israel into exile. They've been in exile for a long time. And then a chap called Cyrus comes to the throne and he changes the policy. Instead of taking all the people out of their lands that he's conquered, he decides to resettle them. He says, right, you can go back. And so God's people have been waiting for this time. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied, you will go back and get ready. I mean, plant your, plant your, your, your crops where you are in exile, but the, the day will come when you go back. And so in 536 before Christ, they return from exile to Jerusalem. I mean, this is a big deal. They've been in exile 70 years. Some of them maybe gave up hope that they would ever see the promised land again. The land that God gave them because of the promises he made to Abraham. Will they ever see Jerusalem again? Will they ever see the temple there built again? So the plan is they return and they're meant to go back and very specifically to rebuild the temple, which is in ruins. It's a pile of stones. And then God will be pleased and God will be honored and the nations will once again know that God is with his people, that these are God's people. And then the nations will be given the opportunity to come to that temple, that the people will stream, these different nations, the Gentiles, would come and meet God there. That was all kind of part of the plan. But the reality was, 15, 16 years later, by 520, going backwards because it's before Christ, right, to zero. So 520, 15, 16 years later, they have returned to Jerusalem. But rather than building a temple, they build their own houses. And God is not pleased. And God has not been honored. And 15 years have gone by. That's quite a long time. And this is the situation that faces Haggai and the people he is speaking to uh, in, this, uh, in this chapter here. And we'll, we'll find out more in chapter 2 as we go on for the next three uh, lessons. Sometimes what God hopes for and desires doesn't happen not because he is incapable or doesn't have the power, but because his people don't make themselves available. It's not that the people don't have the gifts. It's not that God's people don't have the resources. They're just not available. I think those of us who may have read the Minor Prophets know that their messages are quite challenging. And I have to say, Haggai is no exception. And I have no desire to bring a negative message to us today. But I would ask us, as I've had to do studying this, is to open our hearts to the possibility we may need a message from God that challenges our thinking, challenges our behavior, to see whether, personally and collectively, 
we're pleasing God and honoring him in the way that he desires and that is right. Now and again, it's good to be um, a little sober. That's the job of a prophet, basically. So two things I'd like to bring to us today and the as thoughts from this. And the first is the fact that Haggai comes onto the scene. We don't know anything really about him. His name means festival. Um, so maybe he was born during a time of a festival and he got called festival. That's, you know, that's when he was born. We don't know anything about his background, really, and we don't know what happened after this. He starts speaking here, and he finishes a few months, a few weeks, well, months later, about 15 weeks later. So his whole prophetic career, as far as we know, was 15 weeks long. So I think God is taking the spotlight off Haggai here, but he's not, in a way, that, that significant, and onto the real issues. But one of the things that Haggai does do so well is that he sees he has a role, and he accepts it from God as being somebody who can point God's people back to God. And I would say this, I think we are very blessed in our lives when we have people in our lives who help point us back to God. Because there are times, I mean, let's face it, I've been there and probably you have, there are times when we don't have the strength or even sometimes the willingness to point ourselves back to God. I mean, surely we should always be able to do that, right? We have the Spirit of Christ, we have a Bible, we have access to prayer, I mean... But there are times that happen in our lives when we just, we, we're off, the compass is off. And we need someone to say, your compass is off. And point us back to God. And this is exactly uh, what he does. When he says, he brings this word from the Lord Almighty in verse 2. These people say, do you notice these people? Not my people. They are God's people. But it's like God is saying, do you really want to be my people? These people say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. The time has not yet come. So the people have decided it's not the time, but it doesn't, doesn't look like they've actually asked God, is it the right time? It actually looks like the right time. They are back in the promised land and it's God that made it happen. But they are saying, well, no, 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 it's not the right time. And in fact, it hasn't been the right time, not just for a few days or weeks or even months. It's not been the right time for 15 years. Is it the right time to rebuild the Lord's house? They have decided not. And then God asks a question in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, which is referring to the temple, remains a ruin? Now bear in mind as he's saying that, they all knew where the temple was. Jerusalem was a small city in those days. And they're living within the city walls and areas, so they know where it is. They walk past it. It's a bit like... Perhaps the way you walk to the shops or the way you walk to work or to the tube or something like that, you know the landmarks on the way, right? Even if you're not conscious of them, you know them. And it's like you're saying, you know where the temple is. You know, maybe even that he's able to point to it and they can see it because most things you would be able to see in that city at that time, the size it was. So is it type of this city, this uh, building, this home to be in ruins and your houses, and he may be pointing to some of their houses. I see your, and the word paneled, by the way, can also be translated roof. And I rather prefer that image in my mind, right? So here you have God's temple, pile of stones. I, I see no roof. I see your houses. They, it's, oh, look, they all have roofs. How interesting. You have found the time and decided it was the right time to put a roof on your house, but you have not found the time and decided it is not the right time to put a, house, a roof on God's house. Now, people of Israel, let's reason together here. What's, what's going on? After 15 years, he's questioning 
he's questioning many things, but he's pointing them back to God and saying, isn't it really all about God? Aren't you only here because of God? Aren't you only here for God? Isn't that kind of the point? They've forgotten. This is not Jerusalem, but it's an ancient site. And maybe, maybe it was something a bit like that. Remnants of what used to be there. You can still tell that's an old temple. You can still tell there was a temple. But 15 years, there's been time for a tree to grow. Their houses have roofs. God's does not. The thing that they've missed is that God has been trying to get their attention, right? Give careful thought to your ways is a phrase that comes up several times in the prophets and several times in Haggai. You've planted much, harvested little. Isn't that frustrating? You know, as you know, Penny, my poor wife has COVID, by the way, so I'm praying for her. I have been testing negative. Um, trying to stay away from each other as much as we can. Uh, it's really horrible, actually. <laughs> Just walking around the house from different parts of the house. I can, I can hear you walking around. Um, but uh, what was I, why was I? Oh, yeah, so, you know, Penny is a, is a great gardener. And, uh, you know, Joe and Lisa have an allotment. Others have allotments. It's so frustrating when you sow, nothing comes up. You've planted, harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, never have your fill. Put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And there's more. He, he talks about other crops there and also in chapter 2. What Haggai is saying is, haven't you noticed how God has been trying to get your attention? It's not like God hasn't given you some clues, some nudges. And I wonder, as a congregation, but even also personally, what, what, if God's trying to get your attention, what would he use to get your attention? Has he been trying to get your attention? Has he been trying to get our attention? I mean, Brexit, the death of the Queen, COVID, all the stuff around that, the war in Ukraine and the impact of that, the uh, consequences, our energy crisis, um, inflation, personal issues, health challenges, <coughs> lacking sleep, having difficulty with that. I very rarely met someone who never has problems sleeping, but perhaps more problems than usual, financial problems of your own, challenges with your children, challenges with aging parents, practical or emotional, or whatever, job issues that are not getting resolved. I don't know. I'm not saying that everything that happens in our lives is obviously God trying to get our attention about something, not necessarily, but... I would ask us to reflect in prayer, in meditative prayer with God, and ask God to make it clear if he has been trying to get your attention and mine so that we might build his house. Whatever exactly that means, which we'll talk about in a minute. Are we paying attention? Haggai comes on the scene to be a blessing to the people of God by challenging their priorities and by asking them why they've missed what God has been doing. What, didn't you notice? It's God's grace that allowed them to be hungry and not have enough money and not be warm and not have a harvest. It's actually his grace because unless they notice what he's doing, they won't be connected with him. They won't be able to see the temple rebuilt and all the other blessings that will come with that. And they're to do this, they're to pay attention and get 
their priorities straight, not because it's just a duty that needs to be done, but because then God, as he says in verse 8, can take pleasure in it and be honoured. And the Christian life, if it's about anything, it is about living in a way that pleases God and honours him. I went on a personal spiritual retreat in July, and I took the book of Haggai kind of with me as my theme book to read and study and meditate on. And as I did that, one of the things that came across to me very clearly from God, I really felt he spoke to me in this, is to not overcomplicate my spiritual life, not overcomplicate my Christian life, but to put things through the simple filter of, am I pleasing him and am I honoring him? And will the choices I make today please him? And will the choices I make today honor him? And maybe that's a good, simple filter, not a formula, but a filter for a congregation too, for us. Are the things we're doing and focused on, are they pleasing him? Are they honoring him? It's a question for us to reflect on and to think about. So my other question, before I move on to the second point, is connected to this, is do we have somebody in our lives who we're grateful for because they are able to point us to God? Would we accept it if someone was attempting to point us back to God? Perhaps challenging our priorities in love, in kindness and with patience. But nonetheless, do we have an openness to being corrected in our priorities, to being pointed back to God and to be asked whether we are noticing what God is doing to get our attention? I can't answer that for all of us here. That's not the, the point exactly. It's more for us to reflect on having that gratitude for someone a bit like a Haggai who can point us back to God when we need that. It's the first thing I see here. But the second thing is the response. I mean, this is quite a challenging message from Haggai. And the room is very quiet right now as well, I notice. So I understand, you know, there's, there's things that make us think and, you know, can be a little burdensome on our soul, you know, thinking about this kind of thing. But we do notice a really interesting response. So Zerubbabel, who is the uh, governor, he's just got a spiritual role on some level, but he's actually a secular governor, and Joshua, who is the high priest. And it says the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So you see, they, they are willing to accept the fact that Haggai is from God and has a message from God. And it says the people feared the Lord. And I, I think what that's communicating to us is, I think, repentance, for one. And secondly, a reconnection with God. They've been walking past this pile of stones for 15 years, building their own houses. Now they're reconnected. They haven't been connected with God. They've been in the right place in Jerusalem. They've been really around and close to the temple, which is the, you know, the place where God said he'd always be with them. They've been in the right place, but they haven't been connected with God. And now they fear the Lord. And of course, fearing the Lord in an Old Testament context is always a very positive thing. It's not like, oh, now I'm terrified of God. He's going to smite me. It's more, oh, now I'm honoring God. Now I recognize who God is. His is a, a, name, is a name to be honored and feared in the sense that he is God and I am not. And now they fear him. They're reconnected with God. And that's one of the wonderful things about changing our perspective and our priorities, repenting, is it connects us with God. And there's always joy that comes from that, and the joy leads to action. It's not the action that is the repentance, but the repentance leads to the action. Because then, what does it say? Uh, they obeyed, and this message came from, uh, from Haggai. 
I'm with you, says the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, the high priest, all the people. And they came in verse 14 and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. They got on with it. They were like, okay, you're totally right, Haggai. We missed all these signs from God. We forgot why we were here. What were we thinking? Brain dead for a minute here. You've now helped us to recognize what's really going on. We're so glad that you told us the truth so that we could reconnect with God. And now we want to get on with the work. There's a, I think there's a sense of joy here, an eagerness. They got on with this straight away. Okay, Let's, we've got our roofs. Let's give God a roof. They're excited about it. And I think it is a joy to build for God's pleasure and honor. When we're building for God's pleasure and God's honor, there's a joy in that. The Christian life, in case you hadn't noticed, is quite hard. I mean, there are fun bits of it, but it really is quite hard. We deny ourselves things that the rest of the world would think was ridiculous. We're looked down on and pitied by people. Sometimes it can get in the way of a career advancement and all kinds of things. I mean, there's tough things about being a Christian. Um, we give up time for other people that we might you know, want to keep for ourselves. and Maybe we're not as wealthy as we would be because we use our money to bless other people. There are hard things about being a Christian, but if we are laboring for God, for his pleasure and his honor, I believe there is a joy in that because there is a deeper satisfaction that comes from our work for God than our work for anything else. That's not to devalue whatever, wherever we put our energies elsewhere. It's not a, that's not the point, but there's a somehow a, a richer and deeper sense of meaning that comes from our work that's done for God's pleasure and God's honor. They are going to have to go to the mountains in verse 8. He says, go to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so I can take pleasure in it and be honored. And I, I wonder why they're told, they're told to go to the mountains. I mean, clearly that's where the wood is. But the mountains, they are not safe places. And I do wonder whether part of what's going on here is they knew where to go. They knew where it was but they didn't want to go there. Mountains are high. You've got to climb up a mountain. Who wants to climb up a mountain if you don't have to? You're going to have to bring timber down. That's going to be hard work. The mountains are the places where the jackals are. It's dangerous. There are dangerous animals. It's also the place where the bandits live. So, you know, you could get attacked. And also, historically, of course, the mountains were the places where the Israelites and other nations put idols, which uh, took... Israel's heart away from God. And so, do you really want to go there? But God says, no, no, that's where the resources are. It may be hard work. It may be even dangerous. But trust me, go up to the mountains, bring down the timber, give me a roof, and all will be well. And I think there's something there for us. That sometimes the Christian life requires quite a lot of sacrifice. More than we would prefer to give. Certainly more than is convenient or comfortable. But if we're willing to work for the Lord, to toil, to build God's church, to toil for God's pleasure and honor, I believe God will give us the strength we need. And again, in the end, it's not about our gifts. It's not about our resources. It's really about God. Building the kingdom, if you like. It's using God's strength. It reminds me of a passage we've studied a bit recently from Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple, because tabernacle in David's time when he wrote 
facade. But now, later, Solomon's temple and now the ruins. This is all I want. I want to be with you, God. I want to gaze on your beauty. This is what I want. And I will, and the people here seem to get that point. And they set to work because that's what they decide now that they want. They want God more than anything else. And it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. God gives them the strength they need. They repent. God gives them strength. They get on with the work. Strength comes from God. We need the Lord to stir us if we're going to get, if we're going to do what God has in mind for us. We need his strength. And I think this goes back to our willingness to submit ourselves to spiritual disciplines, to give God his opportunity to work his power in us. Spiritual disciplines don't give us God's spiritual strength, but they channel, or not channel isn't quite the right word, they open us up to God being able to do his work in us. Things like silence, spent with God, solitude with God, celebration, fellowship with God, slow scripture reading, praying through scripture, fasting. These things are not so much things we do so that God will do something, but these are things we do to place ourselves somewhere where God is able to do his work in us. If we're going to do the work of God here and through our lives, we've got to be the people that are stirred by the Lord. And this is our own personal devotional times. Certainly collectively, yes, praying together and singing. But we are kidding ourselves if we think we can sustain a Christian life over a few decades and do his will and please him and honor him if we're not spending time in prayer, in God's word, Studying it, meditating on it, thinking about it, talking about it together, learning together, and using other disciplines like solitude and silence to enable God to speak to us and work in us. And so I make an appeal for us to think about our own personal devotional life. How is that going? And that's a judgment call each one of us will have to make on our own. And evaluating that can be a little challenging, especially if we come from a guilt kind of background. We need to talk about this stuff. And our connection with God is what matters most, matters more than anything in, anything else. In John chapter 2, Jesus is in the temple courts, a model there of Herod's temple, the temple of Herod's time, built on the rebuilt temple that, uh, of the time of Haggai. And Jesus talked about the temple to his critics, and he said, Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, you've got to bear in mind the collective memory of the Israelites is how long it took to build that temple. Herod's temple was still being constructed. It took decades. In fact, it wasn't finished until right before AD 70 when it was knocked down by the Romans again, unfortunately, or you could say. Um, but they had the collective memory of the, uh, the second temple, the temple built around the time of Haggai, and the first temple, Solomon's temple, so Jesus says, well, destroy it, and I'll build it in three days. And because the people of Haggai's day had had 15 years and hadn't done it. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and it still wasn't finished. And you're going to raise it in, in three days? The temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, 
his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. See, the ultimate temple is Christ's body raised from the dead. And we labor for God because the resurrection is real. Because now we share in that temple, not in a physical sense, but we share in that temple because Christ has come to be with us. And we take bread and wine, at least in part, because the physical nature of that bread and the, and the juice wine, that helps remind us of the cost of what it took for that temple to rise again and for us to be part of that temple, because we are now part of the temple as people of God. And that's what inspires our work for God. Our labor for God, our prayers for people, our sitting down and talking to people, our sitting down and listening to people, our serving those in our neighborhood who are, who are sick or poor or needy in some way, looking after people from Ukraine or Afghanistan or somewhere like that, making an extra phone call, uh, going to visit somebody, cooking someone a meal, um, just loving people in the congregation and outside. That love, it, it, it's got to be located in a desire to please God and honor God. And the strength of that, from that comes from people pointing us to God. It comes from our own decisions to repent. It comes from our own decisions to sacrifice willingly, to go to whatever the uh, metaphorical mountains are for us to find the resources, those spiritual disciplines that take time and take efforts to employ, those things done for God enable us to help Jesus, to help Jesus is the right way of putting it, to cooperate with Jesus in his work in our lives and through us into this world. So some things for us to think about uh, today. 